0: All right, well, we are um, continuing uh, our study on Wednesday night of just understanding salvation. We started a few, uh, many weeks ago, looking at uh, just the church, what the church is, how how we come to understand um, the church body that we are a part of, and what our role is, as defined in Scripture, what our role is in the world around us. Um, as we come to understand salvation, we're really thinking about this on, in a couple different ways. And I, I recognize that, that for the most part, what we've been talking about is where the scriptures sort of pull back the curtain mm. a little bit and give us insight into um, the, the heaven level, the God process of salvation. What, what went on, the inner workings, the cogs, if you will, of our salvation and what took place both before the foundation of the world in space and time and all of those things. And we'll also, as the weeks go on, begin to look also at what happens in the day-to-day. There are uh, surely, for most of us in this room who have professed faith in Christ, there's a point in space and time where we actually became aware of what the gospel was and our need for christ and that happened probably in a maybe in a church service somewhere at the preaching of the gospel maybe somebody came up to you cold and just shared the gospel with you Uh, maybe it was a parent that continued to teach you those things but at some point in our life we either grew into an understanding of what the gospel was or maybe it hit us like a ton of bricks one day and we just for one reason or another turned and so What what our hope is, is to really understand on the front end, here's what the Word tells us about how we are saved, how God has saved us. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. God made you alive. And then moving on from that, hopefully that will lay a foundation for us to understand how do we process what happened in space and time when I was sitting there in that church and that preacher was preaching the message of the gospel and shared it with everyone there and I All of a sudden, the scales fell off, and I understood my need for Christ at that moment. And so hopefully those things will come and mesh together over the course of time. We're five weeks, I think, into what I've plotted out for about 13 weeks, so um, we're not yet halfway through. So just bear with me uh, on some of this. What we've talked about so far is really the first two weeks in two capacities uh, is understanding our own sinfulness that there is sin that we are guilty of before we are ever born, in that we're born in the line of Adam. Uh, We uh, are guilty along with Adam. When Adam sinned, all died. He poisoned the gene pool, as it were. All of us were were guilty of sin before uh, birth. And as an example of that, Paul lays out that before the law was even given... People died from Adam to Moses. It, people died. So you're guilty uh, even before. And some of those were, uh, a whole host of those were in infancy, right? Uh, some of those were never made it out of the womb, and they, they died. Um, so there is original sin that has corrupted entirely and is renders us guilty. But then there's also the corruption that results from sinfulness, that there's not one kid that's been born to any of us that we've had to teach to steal or to you know hit their brother or sister, they were born with that knowledge. The corruption was inherited. They they've come to understand sin immediately from the womb, and they know how to lie and cheat and, uh, cheat and steal and all of those things, and they're, they're they're sort of born with it. And so there's a corruption that's that's inherited. So, but the reason that they do that is because the entire gene pool has been corrupted. That's the reason that they come to, to act out on sin. So we sin because we are sinners as a result. Um, but then we also talked about in the third week, let's understand who Christ is and the nature of what Christ is as we understand it in Scripture, as it's presented to us. And that helps us to understand, first of all, the, the difference between us and God in that we see Christ and we understand from the Scriptures as we see his character laid out on the pages of Scripture, that we don't line up with that at all. And in fact, we even feel it in his teaching as well, don't we? That when he says on the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, if anyone lusts after somebody, he's committed adultery in his heart. And don't we all look at that passage and go, well, I ain't that. I mean, I don't have the chops to handle that. And yet, this is the righteousness that we see on display in the person of Christ. So, that's the first thing, is that in understanding Christ, we come to understand that there's this distance between God and man. He's holy, and we're not. But then, what it also helps us to see is that that Christ is, at the same time, God and man. He is fully and truly God. 100%, top to bottom, soup to nuts, He's God. And he's yet in the flesh. He is also 100% man. Um, There is a union between these two in the person of Christ. And what that means is that for our sin, only one person can actually fit the bill. And that person has to be fully man because he's got to fulfill man's responsibility for holiness, that we were created to be and that none of us are. So he has to fulfill that role. At the same time, because we're man and we're fallen, none of us can do what is required of us. And so he also has to be fully God in order to actually accomplish what we never could. And so in Christ, we see only uh, a, a fitting person. Um, here. in And then we came to understand last week, we talked about salvation, which is admittedly getting deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, as it were. And it, it's obviously uh, spawned a lot of conversations afterwards, and that's great. Um But we've been saved by Christ's atoning sacrifice, at which time on the cross, Christ satisfied God's wrath toward humanity, towards His his people. And it was fully satisfied. It was completely and fully satisfied. When, When Christ says, it is finished, that's what He's talking about. The wrath of God there on the cross toward you is satisfied. Now, how many of your sins were in the future when Christ died? They were all in the future when Christ died, and so His death on the cross satisfied God's wrath toward you before any of us were ever born, which is definitely difficult as we begin to wrap our mind around that. It's, a, it's one of those um, uh, strings that once you pull it, you start kind of keep going down the ball of yarn uh, as we have over the last couple of weeks, and that's, that's fine. Um, but understand that Christ laid down His life for the sheep, and, and one of the things that we probably, I probably didn't get to as much last week that I probably should have, is that gives us uh, such comfort in knowing that the wrath of God toward us was satisfied. That there, there isn't a struggle on our part to appease God in His anger toward you. That's not the relationship that those that are inside Christ actually have with God. But we're welcomed in as sons and daughters, so that's um, it's helpful. It's encouraging. But this um, Wednesday might be a little bit harder than last week. So, uh, <laughs> so I hope not. And it's honestly my job to try to to try to take the complexities and and make them as, as simple as I possibly can. But there are some things that are just difficult as we begin to wrestle with it, and. Um, and, and so I want to just briefly touch on some things that we already said, just to remind you of them, because they're, they're pertinent for this evening. Um, this first bullet point here, as we've already said, Adam served as the federal head of the whole human race. Um, the whole human race was essentially placed on, you might think of it as a probation or a trial in Eden. Um, that that's kind of how it how the drama sort of plays out there in Eden is a probationary time period. Adam, um, but when Adam took the bite, when Adam disobeyed God, uh, it wasn't just he that took the fall. There, everyone else fell with him. Right? We've just I just mentioned that in the review. And I just want to kind of continue to hone in on that. That is the federal, that's what we mean by federal headship of Adam. He was the one that represented all of us. And so I want to just read that in Scripture. Just let's remind us where that comes from. 1 Corinthians fifteen, twenty-one to 22. For as by, ma- by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, we're going to talk about the Christ part of this later. The main thing I want to focus on is the Adam part of it, that in Adam all die. In Romans 5, 12-14, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So he says this is the kind of sin that was in the world before the law came was not, oh, you did this, that's sin. It was guilty because of Adam. Adam fell, and that's the kind of sin that was in the world. You were counted as dead because, in verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Before there was a specific law saying, thou shalt not, name it, There were people that died. Everyone died, and the reason they died is because they were in Adam. So in Adam, all sinned, and so Adam, when Adam took the bite, when he fell, he didn't act for himself alone, but he transacted for all who were to spring from him. So the second one, the federal headship of Adam, is a term which has almost vanished from current theological culture. This is part of the reason why it's really difficult as we talk about these topics, and especially the federal headship of Adam, most people, when I say that term, have never heard of it before. And and if we would rewind the clocks, probably 150 years, and we had a congregation here of Baptists, you know, at the foundation of Southern Baptist life, probably, most all of us would have heard of it and all of us will probably understand it and, and know it and have worked with it a, a lot. But now, because it's so foreign to us, it becomes a really difficult topic to wrap our head around. But um, but it's vital to understand both the fall, f- the, the federal hedge of Adam for the fall and the redemption of humanity. Because Christ is actually going to step in as a federal head for us. So it's not so hard when we think about When we hear the term federal headship, it's one of those $5 terms. But when you think about Adam, oh yeah, as a result of Adam's sin, I'm guilty. But then when we think about Christ also, don't we also have to say, oh yeah, I guess that's the only way to make sense of how his death actually atones for me, is that he represented me. And so uh, it means then that Adam served as a representative leader for all of mankind. Adam served as a representative leader for all mankind. Um, to some degree, our own governmental system has a little bit of this in, in it, that we, uh, uh, we're a republic, right? We nominate and elect um, representatives to go to Washington and, don't laugh here, fight for us. Right. I said, don't laugh. Um, but but that's that's in, in a sense that that's what we're looking at. But the difference is, obviously, in much of our politics, the elected leaders, though they represent us, don't end up having to pay the consequences for the decisions that are made often. Right. That's not true in Adam. OK. He, he's there with us. He's with the rest of, of humanity, obviously. Um, but he is representative of us in that capacity. That as he fell, so we all uh, fall with him. So there's a representative, he's our representative leader for us. Now, as we seek to kind of understand what Adam is, it's, it's really important that he's going to kind of pave the way for how we actually understand Christ. And the Bible is going to lay this out. It actually wants you to understand all of the people in the Old Testament and the role that they actually play in salvation history. All of them are important, and and probably most especially, Adam is, because he's first. So the pinnacle of God's creation in Genesis 1, in the creation narrative, is Adam, who is made in God's image and likeness. He's made in God's image and likeness, and he is given dominion over God's creation. So this is a really important concept for you to wrap your mind around, is not just that Adam sinned but what role he was actually playing not just that he was our representative but what role he actually what job he actually had what function he actually had in in history so look at genesis 1 26 to 28 then god said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He he created them. Uh, He created him, and male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, typically what I usually tell people is when, when, you, when you're first just kind of reading the passage of Scripture, look for repeated words in there. Do you see any repeated words that kind of clue you in as to the point that's being communicated? In, what is it? Yeah, there, there's, there's a clearly a repetition of dominion. So if I was, if I was to ask you then... For what reason did God make man and his image and likeness, you would have to say, for him to have dominion over the earth? He, he gave him a stewardship component. And, and we talked about this ages ago, but in the creation of man, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And there's lots of people that offer different solutions. Well, he has intellect, he has rationale, he can relate to God, he can worship God, he, can, he has... A, Smarts, for lack of a better way of saying it. he has this, he has that. But but it really is a, a functional combination of all of those things because to have dominion over the earth, as he's given the task, he's got to have all the requisite tools to actually enact that kind of that kind of rule and dominion over the earth. So he's created in the image and likeness, but the Key point to understand about that is being created in the image image and likeness of God has a significance about who Adam is in his person. So this next one, being made in the image and likeness of God, constitutes Adam as the first son of God created in the the world to come into existence, uh, since these terms are terms for sonship. So we see this then repeated when it comes to Adam actually having children, in Genesis 5-3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered, his own son, uh, his, uh, fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. What does it mean to be made in the image and likeness of someone? It means you are their son. Okay, now you might not buy that. I understand that. That's fine. But what if... Luke were to tell you that? Would you buy it from him? Well, if you look at Luke uh, 3, three um, 38, uh, as he's getting through the genealogy of Christ, he says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, son of God. Now, why does Luke uh, go to such lengths? to label uh, Adam as the Son of God, much less Jesus as the Son of God. It's a question that we kind of have to uh, wrestle with a little bit, but it's actually to uh, explain why it's significant that in Jesus' baptism, God speaks out from the sky and proclaims Christ as His Son. So uh, look at 3.22. The passage just before that. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, there are people, and you will you may experience this on your front doorstep from time to time. If somebody knocks on your door, they might spin you a narrative that says... See there, what that means is that Jesus was born just a human, and then at some point in his human life, God adopted him. He, he made him his son. That is, hear me, not at all what's happening there, okay? Uh, you needn't look any further than John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, the whole book of John, you could actually uh, just give them and here's a good little translation of the book of John. Just read that and you'll understand that that's not at all what's being said there. That's not at all what any of them believed. But Luke goes into exp- uh, explain by giving the genealogy of Christ how this is traced back and the significance of being a son of God. And what he's doing there is tying Adam's role and Jesus' role together. So here, Adam was the son of God, and he's given dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the earth, over every living thing that, that walks, crawls, or creeps on the earth. And he's to exercise God's dominion over them. And does he succeed in that? The answer is no. Right? <laughs> That's, that was an easy one. I thought that was going to be a softball. Um, it's no, he doesn't. And what Luke is doing is saying, uh-oh, uh-oh, here comes another one, called the Son of God. But spoiler alert: these two aren't the only one in Scripture that are called sons of God. There's others that are called the sons of God, and those are also important. See Adam's sonship. This next one here, Adam's sonship, continues through the generation, uh, generations of Adam's descendants who are marked out as the elect people. And who are under the covenant promises and stipulations. So let's, let's look at a couple other examples. Look at Exodus 4:22 to23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord, uh, the Lord, Israel uh, is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Oh. Hosea 11:1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So it's not just Adam that's identified as the son of God. It's Israel who's given that special privilege of being the son of God. What you're probably noticing throughout the Old Testament is these people that get this label, the son of God, it doesn't fare too well for them. They, they seem to not be willing to obey the very simple precepts that God gives to them. And, and having this role is really important. But the climax of this historical genealogy uh, is the sons of, of David. Ultimately, David is promised that his sons will reign on the throne and that their, their reign will have no end, that he will bring forth a son who will who is, whose reign will have no end. But let's look at the promise they're given in 2 Samuel. That blank is David, by the way, if I didn't say that clearly. Second Samuel 7 11 to 16. For the time that I appointed judges, uh, from the time that I appointed judges over my people, uh, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, when your days are fulfilled, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the near fulfillment of that, the immediate, near immediate fulfillment of that promise was Solomon, right? He built a house for God. He built the temple, right? He did. But we can also say, That that's not the end of that fulfillment. And Solomon, though he did some things, he also failed catastrophically, right? And declined, and the Lord did discipline him. And David's sons after that continued to err, to sin, and God continued to punish. But he promises, hey, your throne will be established forever. And when Jesus comes along as the Son of God, his, and of the line of David, his throne is really going to be established forever. It's once and for all. But then you also see in the Psalms, as David writes the Psalms, as we're going through in the summers, you know, uh, week by week on Sunday mornings, he says in Psalm 2-7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The New Testament is going to take that line and apply it straight to Jesus. yes. But here, David is, first of all, saying in the, in the near immediate fulfillment, presumably David wrote this, is saying, you are my son. Da- the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As the king over all of Israel, he is declared to be the son of God as in, through adoption. Yes? We're clear on that? Okay. So far. We're just setting things up right now. All right? So just bear with me. So the sons of God in the Old Testament being sons of Adam are equally affected by the fall. And so thus Adam and the rest serves as a type of Christ who, will, who is still to come. Remember Romans 5.14 Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come, in my pocket is an iPhone, and this most many of us will have these smartphones, right? That we can use, and they're they're clean, they're very thin, they're made of glass and aluminum, and they're polished to the hilt, and you get them, and they, they they're smooth, they're smooth operators, right? But have you ever seen the prototype for the iPhone? Have you ever seen this? You should Google it sometime first prototype of the iPhone. is big and clunky. It's got wires coming all, from all different angles and directions, and there's no way you could possibly ever use this. But why would anybody have a prototype? Why would a company actually invent a prototype? It's a model. They, they see how it works. It helps them to understand, right? Well, so when we... we That is pretty common to us. We're familiar with the term prototype as a first model of what is to come. And what we're saying about Adam and many other people throughout Scripture, Moses, David, that they serve as types of Christ. They give us an idea, they teach us what is really lacking in humanity that we can never fulfill what God is requiring of us. So we see that in Adam. We all sinned with Adam. We also see that in David. He's a, uh, I mean, he's a king. He's uniting the countries. He's doing, but then he, there's this woman across the way, and he kills her husband and takes her as a wife. And uh, There's Solomon that came, comes after him. He builds this tremendous temple to worship the Lord, to call all of Israel back to him. But then he Follows along with all of his wives in pagan idolatry and and worship of foreign gods. And so we see in all of these people, there's part of what we're expecting in Christ, but it's lacking in a whole lot of ways. And each one of these characters throughout the Old Testament teaches us what's really lacking in humanity, that no matter what is placed on us, there's no way we could possibly ever fulfill it. So then we get to Jesus. In Jesus' conception, and I mean His incarnation, when He actually took on flesh, when He was a little baby in the womb, or even maybe slightly before He was a baby in the womb, the Spirit, parallel to the first creation in Genesis 1-2, overshadows and brings about the beginning of the new creation. So let's look at what's going on here um, and what I think the Bible is expecting us to pick up on. Um, First of all, in Genesis 1:2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see that in in the Genesis creation account, God creates the world... Through His Spirit, who is we, all, we also know from John that He creates through the, the Word Himself, right? Or not only John, but Paul in Colossians: All things were made through Him, without Him nothing was made that has been made. Um, so, so through Christ, but then also through His Spirit, all three members of the Trinity are there in creation, and the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters, and God creates through Him. But then, what do we see in Luke 1.35? I think this is very important for our understanding of Jesus' own incarnation. Uh, this, isn't, uh, this is a, um, a conception in Mary that is not of a traditional conception, a man and a woman. And, and the, angel over, uh, the angel answered her, "This Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So here is the eternal Son with God in the beginning. There was never a time when He was not. Yet now He is taking on flesh. This is not a traditional conception, Mary. You're not going to have relations with a man. This is going to be the Spirit of God is going to overshadow you. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. And you're going to conceive and bear a Son. And that Son is... Is going to be holy. There's no other way he could be holy. This is the only way, in other words, that he could be holy. So, what does that, that mean then? Well, he, obviously, he's ushering in this new creation, which is the blank there. Uh, in his incarnation, then, Jesus is not in Adam as we are. Right? We've already said we inherited corruption, we inherited guilt before we were ever born. Jesus did not. So, he's not in Adam in the same way that we are. Instead, He is the beginning and head of the new creation. One's not only born of man, but also born of the Spirit. And it's pivotal to understand what actually constitutes the new creation. What is it like to be a member of God's new creation? Not old creation under Adam, but new creation. What is that like? Well, we see it in Jesus. One's born of man and also born of the Spirit of God. So, in His work, Jesus fulfills Adam's role of ruling over creation as the obedient royal son-priest. Evidenced by His healing miracles tied to the inauguration of God's kingdom. So, let's look at, at Hebrews 2, 5-18. to 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while "...crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why... He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, and I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, uh, children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because uh, he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So he's basically describing, and there's a lot in there. I mean, good grief, we could spend forever on Hebrews, and I'm not going to touch all the pieces of this because we'd be here all day. But suffice it to say, he's dealing with Christ actually coming, becoming like becoming man, so that he can become obedient to the point of death, and thus. Fulfill the obligations of mankind. But then, if you look at Psalm 8, this is exactly what he's saying to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger, All sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The author of Psalms is talking about whom? Ultimately, he's talking about Jesus. He's David. He's the king over Israel. He's the son of God. What is his role? What's his role? Dominion. David's role is dominion. His role is to subject all things under the feet of God. Does he accomplish it? No. Well, here comes the Son of God. The author of Hebrews is telling you he is the true Son of God. All things exist through him. And he takes from Psalm 8 and just rips all those verses out of Psalm 8 and just applies them straight to Jesus. And he says David might have been initially talking about himself But in the long run, David was actually talking about Jesus. The ultimate fulfillment of the Son of God is the actual Son of God through whom all things exist and under whose thumb all things are held together. You made him a little lower than the angels so that as a man, he could fulfill the role of the Son of God, truly, putting all things in subjection under him and exercising true dominion over the earth. And so he gets there at the end of the psalm into all the sheep and oxen and beasts of the field. He's going through Genesis. And he's saying, look, my job as king over your kingdom is to put all of these things that Adam failed to do in subjection under you and assure all of them that they live for the glory of God. And he failed to do that. And every king after him failed to do that until we get to Jesus, where the author of Hebrews is saying, Yes, Jesus is doing all of these things. In fact, the inauguration of God's kingdom is precisely Jesus coming in and ruling over all of creation, putting everything in subjection to the feet of God, both enemies and friends, right? Okay. Significantly, in Christ's bodily resurrection... Nope, I missed one, didn't I? Yeah further as adam served as a representative for us and in his sin we're all held guilty so also the new and better adam jesus christ stood for us that by his righteousness many were made righteous and his punishment was sufficient for all so we've read from romans already we've read from first corinthians But I think Isaiah 53 also makes this point. Uh, We'll read, maybe not all of it. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. for the transgressors. So here is Jesus being placed in our place, serving as our covenant head, the new and better Adam, the representative of the new creation, born not merely of flesh and blood, not of the line of Adam, but born of God and born of the Spirit, I should say. And so, here is Jesus as a representative of that. So, significantly, in Christ's bodily resurrection, the new creation is now visible and physical. He is, therefore, the firstborn of the dead. Not meaning that the eternal Son of God was created, but that following His resurrection, He became the first of the consummated kingdom of God. So, in Christ, that's complicated language i realize. He was the first of the consummated kingdom of God. What is the what is God's kingdom consummated? What does that mean? What is the consummated kingdom of God? We ha- we live right now in the inaugurated kingdom of God. It has begun. The new creation has begun. We'll talk about that in a second. The new creation has begun. What will happen when it is fully consummated, when it's final? What happens? What kind of state will we be in? Yeah. Living with Christ, bodily resurrection of the dead, right? We're living with Christ for all of eternity under His rule and His reign. We're perfectly indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that, is there sin any longer? There is no sin any longer. We are, uh, we, we have resurrection bodies, Right? What we're saying here is that in Christ's bodily resurrection, He is the first of the consummated kingdom of God. So when the scriptures say of Him, He's the firstborn of the dead, or the firstborn among many brothers, it's not saying that He's born in the sense that you and I are born. We're kind of come to be out of nothing, right? It's not saying that. It's saying that He is the first... Of the new creation. One's not only born of the Spirit, but also their bodies are resurrected, right? That he's, part, he's the first of the consummated kingdom of God. So in and through Christ, we are now a new creation by the Spirit. So here's where we start to... Okay, so all of that, I realize, from the previous point on up, is difficult, right? It's... Kind of heavy and sort of strange. We're not used to thinking in those terms, but it's important that we understand Adam's role and all of the people that followed after Adam as being a he- our head. That we're all from their li- from their line. We're from the line of Adam, right? We're fallen from the womb. But then it's also important that we understand Jesus, like Adam is a head, Jesus is also a new head. And he is different than Adam. He's like Adam in the sense that he is a son of God. He's like Adam in that he is a covenant head. But he's unlike Adam in that he doesn't fall in this line. Right? He's different. What makes him different? Well, what is it? (coughs) No sin. Uh, Indwelt by the Spirit. Right? Fully. Fully. Um, he's God in the in the flesh. He's in perfectly indwelt by the Spirit. Uh, he, he makes he commits no sins, no errors, no any of any kind, right? Um, is he is he man? Is he man? Yeah. Listen, he is fully man. Is he man right now? Oh, be careful. Yeah. Always and ever will be There is a man in heaven now who is a member of the triune godhead. I'll cook your noodle, won't it? When you really think about that. Not created, his his body was obviously created. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, we're we're not saying that the eternal son was ever created, but his body was created. Yeah, it was it's man. He's fully man, right? So he's fully man and he's perfectly indwelt by the spirit. What will what what are you right now if you were to describe you as a Christian, what are you? Let's describe you. How are you made up? Okay. You've got literally, I mean, yeah, not like what do you look like, but like Okay, you're you're flesh and blood. So you got a, you have a body, a human body. You you are and is that body what is it? Is it holy? Sin, sinful. Right? Okay. Alright. What else do you have? You just have the sinful flesh? Huh? Come on. Alright! Alright. You too have the Spirit of God living in you. Yes? Alright. You haven't yet been glorified. Although, Paul will say it's a done deal. Alright? In Romans 8, he'll say it's a done deal. But, But, for all intents and purposes, we're not glorified yet. But we do have the Spirit of God living in us. So, this is why when the New Testament describes our salvation and our nature, it describes us this way. Listen listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, what is it? Creation. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, the New Testament describes our salvation as not us sitting there asking Jesus into our heart. That's not how it's ever described in the Bible. The way it's described in Scripture is you are a totally new creation. What does it mean to be a creation? What does it mean to be created? You made yourself. Someone else made you. How did that happen? How did someone else make you? Again, right? So let me get this straight. I was sitting there on a pew somewhere in a church. I just happened to stumble in one day. And I heard the gospel preached. And my eyes were opened. And I believed. How did that happen? The Bible describes it like this. God created you. New. That's how he's described. Okay. Let's continue to think about that. Thus Jesus, the second part of this, Jesus describes salvation as being born again. As we start to understand our own salvation, it's really important as we, we wrestle with this, understanding how we came to be saved. And we talked about Christ died taking the wrath of God. The wrath of God is satisfied. God doesn't send His children to hell because He has no wrath to pour out on them. Christ absorbed it. So I was saved. But then in, as I think about my actually being saved in space and time when it actually took place, the way that Jesus describes it, the way Paul describes it, puts me not as the active participant, but as the passive participant. I was created. I was born again. So listen to the way, the way Jesus talks to Nicodemus in John 3.3. 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then five to eight. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is, the spirit has to come into him. That's how he was born again. That's how he saved. Why? Because that's what it means to be part of new creation is the Spirit actually dwells in you, takes up residence in you. And Jesus is saying, unless the Spirit comes in and takes up residence in you, you are not part of the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God is made up of new created people. Jesus sets the, what that looks like, and then we follow. So it's it's new. It's totally new creation, and, and and you might say, well, how does this happen? How does it? How does that? What do I do? How do I prepare? Do I need to stand on the balls of my feet? What do I got to do? And Jesus says in eight, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What? That means there's no manipulating it. There's no. Well, how, well how, do I, how does it happen then? Well, if you go back a couple of chapters to John 1, this is on the previous page, on page 5, John 1, 12-13, he says, But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that's me, I'm sitting there in church, and I believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So far, so good, I'm on track with you. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now oh, we're back in the boat again. I'm not sure how, how, I, how do I actually prepare for this. And what he says is, unless God gives you new birth, you'll never believe. You clearly have to believe. He says that in 12. You have to believe. That's clear, and we're going to talk about that in subsequent weeks. You have to believe. That's how you become children of God, right? Well, yeah, but how were they born? Let's go back before that, 13. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the end result of Christ being the head of this new creation is God's restoration of creation to a new heavens and new earth patterned after the Garden of Eden. Both Isaiah, those passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel, both describe this new creation taking place, ultimately, when it's finally consummated and all done, this new creation takes place, and what do we have there but it described as the Garden of Eden? He actually says that. Look, it was desolate. Now it's the Garden of Eden. The next one. However, whereas the first Adam could not complete his assigned work of subduing God's creation, the new Adam will execute a flawless reign, that's execute, a flawless reign Over the new creation. So we saw in Genesis, Adam and Eve were told, look, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over everything that creeps. And what do we see in Genesis 3, verse 1? There came creeping into the garden one who was crafty. What's Adam's job? Shoot! Go on! You're not not having dominion over me, right? That's not what happens, though. Did God really say, here is a serpent who is not supposed to have dominion over Adam, having dominion over Adam and Eve. But what do we see in Jesus? Look at Revelation 21. It's almost like John knew this and just sort of put this there, you know. And I saw no temple in the city, for its... This is the new heavens and new earth here. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory, for, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. Listen to this. all And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. The gates will never be shut. What does that mean, if your gates are never shut? It, wait, 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 wait. Normally, if your gates are not shut, Okay. If your gates are never shut, you're safe. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Let's think let's think now times, okay? Let's let's, let's think today, okay? If your gates are not shut, uh, that's a problem, especially at night. Good grief. Well, he says there's not going to be any night. So that's okay. But then the gates are never shut and all these people keep walking in. Well, who knows they might be scoundrels, none of them are scanned. He says they will bring in, in they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing Unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here is the Lamb running the show. And unlike Adam, who let that crafty serpent sneak in, here are the gates open to God's kingdom, his new creation. And Jesus is in charge, and nothing unclean ever enters it here is Christ, the new Adam, our head. And anyone that actually falls under Christ, not just Adam, but under Christ, has to be born, not of just flesh, but of the Spirit of God. That is the only way we come to be saved. So as we define salvation, we have to say, first of all, Christ satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. Second, that means that those who have their eyes open to salvation are those who are born of God. He does it. It's a work He creates, breathes into them the breath of life. Questions? Sure, there are some. I know that was a lot. I'm sorry. Now, here's the plan, so that you don't panic. There's Sometimes you ask a question and I'm like, that's about an eight-paragraph-long answer that I have to get to to get to that. I know that. And I'm not trying to frustrate you at all. There will be, I want to just have one Wednesday night where we just do question and answer in regards to this. So if you have one that you're still, like, cooking on and you want to just think through, or maybe, just maybe, I might answer the question in a few weeks. So, you know, maybe you can sit on it for a little while. But any other questions in the meantime? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, the text that's before us and the, the, just the passages, of the lesson, is, is tough. It's hard for us to understand sometimes. And, and we pray for help. We pray that you would help us to think about just the significance of being a part of the new creation in and through Christ. Wow, what a profound thing you have done. In Christ's atoning work for us. What love you have shown to us in Christ coming to die for us. What hope we have in the resurrection of Christ, knowing that as part of your new creation, knowing that we too will rise again, that death is not the end, that it will one day be robbed of victory and its sting. We long for that day and we pray. The return of Christ soon and very soon, and we long for it. And as the world grows darker, we long for it all the more. But we pray that in the meantime, however long it may be between now and then, that you would provide for us the strength and courage to face the world each and every day. The grace that it takes to deal with those who are right now enemies of your kingdom, the boldness to share the gospel with them. And the peace, knowing that you are sovereign, you are in control, and you reign. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.